0: chapter 11, the book of Matthew, chapter 11. We will be uh, walking through another Advent teaching and coming off of what uh, Pastor Nick shared with us last week concerning John the Baptist and preparing the way of Christ. I want to ask you a question as we begin. What, What would it look like to you if God intervened in history not often do we you know want our opinions on what God would do but in this case I just wonder if we might if we reflected on our thoughts what would it look like if God intervened in history for many you know very strong Christians say well Jesus of course duh well but seriously (laughs) I mean just consider this Would you have come up with the baby born to a virgin, 13 or 14 year old virgin, born in a stable, raised as a carpenter, uh, born in a town called Nazareth, to which someone would say, can anything good come out of Nazareth, stinking Nazareth? He would be a carpenter eventually to begin a ministry of teaching, casting out demons, raising the dead, healing, well, maybe we would choose those parts, right? Right? But to be rejected by His own people and eventually brutally killed. I mean, that sounds like God. That's what you would have come up with, right? To be your Savior? I doubt, besides the raising the dead and the healing and casting out demons, I doubt if the rest of that is anything close to what we would consider personally to be godlike. And in fact, in this passage that we're going to consider this morning, even John the Baptist... Even John the Baptist, the one we saw boldly saying, prepare the way of the king, the coming one. Even John the Baptist is going to send a question. Are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect another? The truth is, none of us really know what we need in a Savior. That, that's the truth. We don't know what we need in a Savior. If it were not for God, we would not know. And I hope you see this morning that the baby in the manger, who would become the one on the cross and is now the one on the throne, is the Savior we need. He is the Savior we need. So will you walk with me as we read um, in Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 2 to verse 11. As they, John's disciples, went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen none greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have given us your word and we thank you that you have given to us of your spirit so that we might see your beauty. Lord, help us to be reminded this morning that that we really don't know what we need, but Lord, that you have graciously shown it to us and that Jesus, the suffering sovereign one, you are the Savior that we need. Please open our hearts to hear your word this morning and help us also to confess our sins and the many ways that we still continue to deny you. Thank you for your grace. Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen. I would remind you that, that John had confidently affirmed that Jesus was the Messiah, the coming one, for whom he had been preparing the way. If we, Nick didn't quite hit this last week, but if you continued on from the passage of last week, of John preparing the way, urging repentance, if you continued on after that, Jesus came to John to be baptized. And when Jesus came to be baptized, you'll probably remember that passage, John immediately said, I'm not worthy. I am not worthy to baptize you. John was confident that Jesus was the one sent by God to be the Savior of his people but now, John has been in prison for some time. Matthew doesn't explain why John is in prison until, until chapter 14 of his gospel. But we know this from reading Matthew and even Mark, that John is in prison because of his ministry of preparing the way for Christ. He was calling for repentance and even called out Herod for his bad relationship with, with a, a woman. And because of that, Herod put him in prison. And we know that eventually John would be killed. For, at this point, he's probably been in prison for a little while and knows that his ministry is practically over. And so you can imagine that some doubts probably developed in John. But there's another aspect of why John might be asking this question. If you remember from the passage from last week, John said that Jesus, that his winnowing fork was in his hand. Do you remember that? And that he would separate the chaff. The chaff would be burned away and then the wheat would remain. And so John expected in this Messiah one who would bring judgment. Immediately bring judgment. And to this point, there hasn't been any clear uh, fire raining down. And so maybe it's that, that, that Jesus is not quite meeting what John's expectations were. But John's, John addresses this question to Jesus are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Well, one other aspect before we jump into Jesus' response. When John says, Are you the one who is to come? It sounds just like a normal phrase, and it is, but it's actually also a technical phrase. The one, the coming one. John is speaking about the one who was promised in the prophets. One who was to come and was to perform God's work in saving his people. John is not talking about just a, a, some guy who's talented and has the ability to do some miracles or, or magic or whatever. This, this is one guy. There is only one guy who can perform this role. And this is what John is asking about. Are you that guy? Are you the one so this is how Jesus responds. And the first uh, point you'll see in your notes, I hope you've taken those out of, of the bulletin, is who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Jesus answers John's disciples, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Jesus answer is highlighting several Old Testament passages that give us basically two indications of who he is. First, he is the one who is predicted by the prophets. He is the one who was predicted by the prophets. The prophets of old had predicted what the time would look like when the Messiah, God's anointed one, would come. Isaiah 35, verses 5 through 6. I hope you'll just listen to these verses. Just listen in, and you can write it down and check me later. Tell those who panic, Isaiah says. Be strong, don't fear. Look, your God comes to avenge. With divine retribution, He comes to deliver you. Then blind eyes will open, deaf ears will hear. The lame will leap like a deer, and the mute tongue will shout for joy. This is what the Messiah would do. Isaiah 29, 18-19 At that time, the deaf will be able to hear words read from a scroll. And the eyes of the blind will be able to see through deep darkness. The downtrodden will again rejoice in the Lord. The poor among humankind will take delight in the the Holy One of Israel. You see, the Anointed One of God would be known through these acts of miraculous power. And as Jesus quotes these passages, he's drawing from these Old Testament passages that John would have been very aware of. He's boldly asserting that he is the one who is fulfilling these prophecies. He is the Messiah. Indeed, to John's question, he answers, yes, I am the one who is to come. And friends, what we should marvel at is not only that Jesus, he did these great acts of miraculous power, and that is something to marvel at, but also that these things were accurately predicted over 500 years prior to Jesus' coming. This is what is so incredible about the coming of Christ. First, that he is the powerful one who acts on behalf of God, but also that this is so attested by even prophets 500 years earlier. Friends, God is not one who's out there in some realm and who's distant from us, but he is one who, who reigns, but also is intimately working in our world. And so the prophets, 500 years earlier, predicted what it would look like when God came to earth and intervened in history. And indeed, this is what it looked like. Second Peter 1: through19. Peter says, "We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have something more sure the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Friends, this is a sure word. Christ was prophesied of old, and then he came and fulfilled the prophecies hundreds of years later. He is the one who is to come. And God has made it clear. And so I hope that if there are doubts in you this morning, I hope that you are encouraged. I hope that you are reminded that God has shown us Himself. If you need proof, He has given us some proof. And you know what's interesting, and we'll say this a little bit more later. John asks the question, are you the one who is to come? It's as if John needs a little bit more proof. He, he's struggling. He's been in prison. Uh, you know, his emotions are probably uh, fluctuating. And what Jesus tells him to reaffirm him isn't anything he didn't already know. John already knew that Jesus was doing those things. Did you hear the beginning of the passage? John heard the works of Christ, and then he sent and told them to ask him. He knew. And so the application for us is that we don't need to have God show us more. We need to trust what he's already shown us. And he's revealed himself to us. And so the question is, are you trusting him? Are you trusting him? So, Jesus is the one who was predicted by the prophets, but he's also the one who is sent directly by God. These points are very interrelated, but I want to make sure we see both of them very clearly. Verse 6, Blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Blessed, simply, Jesus is saying, if if you're not offended by me and what I'm doing, then you have been shown divine favor. God has opened your eyes to see. He's given you, he's showing you his grace and his kindness. And so blessed is the one who's not made to stumble, who's not led into unbelief because of me and what I'm doing. He is the one who was sent by God, Isaiah 61.1, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because the Lord has chosen me. He has commissioned me to encourage the poor, to help the brokenhearted, to decree the release of captives and the freeing of prisoners. Psalm 146.8 The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord is acting through His Messiah, His Anointed One, His own Son. And He is fulfilling these prophecies and He is bringing salvation to His people. As one author says, in the compassionate ministry of Jesus, God is visiting His people as He promised. Again, again, John is not told anything new here. He's simply reminded God is keeping His promise. He's reminded of what He already knew. Friends, the way of faith for us, the way of faith for John... It's not some kind of abstract thought about the meaning of life. It's not through over-philosophizing. It's not through uh, considering our emotions and what our emotions are telling us. But friends, it's through the Word of God. It's through what God has already revealed. The issue for John wasn't that he needed more proof. He only needed to believe the proof he already had. Some of us are asking God to reveal Himself to us more. You know, Maybe we're in a difficult situation in life and we're having to make some difficult decisions and we're asking God, God, will you, will you reveal yourself to me? Will you make yourself more clear? And that's not always a bad prayer, but we do need to recognize, be careful to recognize, that God has already offered to us His greatest revelation. And if we would just behold His Son, Christ, the Messiah, the one who would bring salvation, if we would behold Him and our hearts would be captivated by Him, I have a feeling that we might not be quite as concerned with the other questions. Christ is the greatest revelation. He is the fulfillment of all God's promises. Yes, He will come again. And we won't miss that. It will be clear. And until then, our only role is to walk by the power of His Holy Spirit who He gives to those who would trust in Him. So, I hope you see that Christianity provides what I believe to be the only well-grounded claim that God not only worked in history, but He stepped into history through His Son. And so Jesus, in identifying Himself as John, asks who He is, are you the one? Surely, yes, I am the one to come. The only one to come. And then, as John's disciples walk away, Jesus begins with His own set of questions to the surrounding crowds. We look at verse 7 with me. The second part, Jesus says to the crowds, "What what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see, a man dressed in soft clothing? Behold those who wear soft clothing are in kings' houses. What then did you go out to see?" And he says, "A prophet, I tell you, yes, I tell you and more than a prophet." And then he quotes another Old Testament passage that we will get to, but what is Jesus doing here? What's he doing? Well, the first question he asks is, did you you go out to see a reed shaken by the wind? What does this mean? Well, in these days, there wasn't a lot of access to uh, quick communication. And so, Kings, as a way of communicating, would even would put emblems on coins and the money was a way of communicating and they would have emblems much like we do today, um, but except they didn't have like .gov uh, email addresses for Herod to receive complaints and other things. But Herod had chosen as his emblem on a coin a reed. He had chosen a reed. And so most likely, as we read this passage, as Jesus would have uh, asked this question, did you go out to see a reed in the wilderness? Someone like this? It was identified with Herod because of the coins, the everyday coins that they used. And so the question and the meaning behind that, when you went out to the wilderness, were you going to see a king, another king like Herod? Someone who would rule? See, you've probably heard this many times, but many people in waiting for a Messiah were looking for a military ruler. They were looking for someone to come in, conquer and sack the Romans, and to take over and to rule. And so Jesus, in asking this question, He's asking, were you looking for another ruler like Herod? Were you looking for someone else to rule over you? And the obvious answer is no. When you, You're you not going to find a king in the wilderness, in the desert. And you know the message of John was nothing like Herod. The second question, what then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. Uh, this man who's in, in soft clothing, it's luxurious clothing. And, and I don't think that John's camel hair was very soft. If you've ever touched camel hair, it's... Uh, Yeah, it's not like a soft sweater. So, were you going to see a man of power and prestige? And the obvious answer, again, is no. That's not what you were going out in the wilderness to see. So, Jesus, again, what about a prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is him of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Jesus quotes another Old Testament passage, Malachi 3.1, which prophesies the work of John the Baptist, the one who would prepare the way. Well, why is this so important? Here's the point. This is where Jesus is going. By proving who John is, he puts before them the the main question. If John is the one who is prophesied of, who would prepare the way, then who must I be? That's the real question. And jump down. There's some of the context we can't catch just in verses 1 through 11. But look at verse 16. Jump down just to verse 16 and we'll catch the rest of what's going on here. Verse 16. But to what shall I compare this generation? Is it like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates? We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge for you and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. The issue that's going on here and that Jesus is addressing is that the people are rejecting him. The people are rejecting him. He did not come in the way that they wanted him to come. And so, they do not accept him as the Messiah. In this context, even John the Baptist is concerned and is asking questions. And so Jesus gives this series of questions to say, if John the Baptist is the one who is prophesied of, then I am indeed the Messiah. Without saying it clearly, that's where Jesus is, and not a statement. He addresses that through questions. The, even what's so surprising about Jesus, I believe, to many of these people, and the reason they're rejecting him, is because Jesus is not only calling the, the wicked to repentance, but he's also calling the righteous people to repentance. The righteous people expected Jesus will come in, He'll take care of us, but He'll he'll get rid of all the evil. And what they didn't realize, and what many of us don't realize, is that if Jesus was to take care of all the evil, He would take us out in the process. And so Jesus has not taken care of all the evil yet. He didn't come the way they wanted him to, and so they are rejecting him. You know, the truth is, we will likely, none of us will ever overestimate our sinfulness. We won't. We'll never overestimate our sinfulness. We'll always underestimate it. We won't overestimate the sinfulness of our world that's caused not just by other sin, but by our sin. Each of our our individual sins. What I I hope you see this morning is that it's not just these people who rejected Jesus. We also reject Jesus sometimes. Even Christians reject Jesus sometimes. We don't understand what kind of Savior we need. I'm sure that you've been following the news stories of the shooting in Newton as we talked about this morning already, 26 uh, to 28 dead, if, uh, 20 of whom at least were children, six to seven years old, first and second grade. Just impossible to really wrap our head around this tragedy and to understand what happened. One pastor commented, and, and I think he commented correctly, we need a suffering Savior We need a savior who's tasted the cup of horror we are being forced to drink. And that's how he came. He knew what this world needed. Not a comedian, not a sports hero, not a movie star, not a political genius, not a doctor, not even a pastor. The world needed what no mere man could be. The world needed a suffering sovereign. Mere suffering wouldn't do. Mere sovereignty wouldn't do. The one who is not strong enough to save, the other is not, not weak enough to sympathize. So he came as who he was, the compassionate king, the, cru- the crushed conqueror, the lamb-like lion, the suffering sovereign. And now he can even come to N- Newton, Connecticut. Perfected through suffering, hated by the proud, demonized by the strong, willingly poor, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, planning to be crushed, despised and rejected, ready to be wounded, submissive like a lamb, led to the slaughter, enduring anguish, poured out in death, and risen to help. He's the suffering sovereign. Max Licato pointed out in one article on this topic that Jesus' birth was followed by an order from Herod to slay all the boys under two years old. And he writes, the Christmas story is that Jesus was born into a dark and impoverished world. And that world is the result of each one of our sin. Each one of us. Friends, the only reason if we know Christ, the only reason we know what kind of Savior we need is because God has shown it to us. Even us as Christians, we reject Jesus at times. I was thinking about how, you know, here it's easy to look at these people and say, well, you're so foolish. What were you missing? But even we as believers, mature followers of Christ, we reject Jesus. We reject Jesus when we don't like his path of sanctification. When we don't like how he chooses to remove the sin in our lives and make us more like him. And we choose not to honor him. His path of sanctification, you know, it might be a difficult marriage. That might be how he conforms us to himself. Learning to submit and love and be gracious in a really hard marriage. That might be how he chooses to sanctify us. But sometimes we reject him and say, he's just an idiot and I am not going to listen to him. Or, she's a nagging wife and I'm not going to put up with it. His sanctification might be laying down our wants and our desires to faithfully and diligently raise our children in the Lord, sacrificing a a higher salary so that we can be there for them and we can raise them rightly. It might be obeying our parents, students. That might be how God chooses to sanctify you, by, by making you submit to your parents. How wretched is that? But that's how God loves you and sanctifies you. But you reject Jesus when you choose not to do that It might be persevering and working hard through school, education. It might be persevering with a thankful spirit even through the last difficult, hard years of life. Getting older. They say it's not for the weak. The faint of heart. Jesus sanctifies us in ways we really don't like. And that's... That's why it can makes us more like him. Because we have to give it to him. And we have to submit to him. And Jesus says, take up your cross. Deny yourself. And that's the only way you're going to follow me. And friends, if you're not denying yourself, then you are rejecting Jesus. So those are ways that even Christians, even us, we reject Jesus. He's not the guy we want him to be. You know, we want a guy. We want a Messiah who will take care of sin as long as it's not ours. That's not the type of Savior that Jesus is. So, this is why Jesus addresses these questions about John the Baptist. Who is John the Baptist? John is the one who would prophesy about another. And if this is John the Baptist, then that only means one thing I'm the guy, I am the Messiah. So lastly, about John the Baptist, it says that John the Baptist was the greatest one born of women. There's not one who's greater than John the Baptist born of women. What what this means and what Jesus is saying is that John played a unique role in preparing the way for the Son of God. He was the one who would prepare the way for Jesus, the one to bring salvation for all people. And so what makes him so special among all who have been born of women is that He's the one to roll out the red carpet for the Son of God Himself. You know, there are some people I would be honored just to do their laundry. Like Dr. David, Mr. Al, and, and Nick. I mean, I'm just honored just to, to polish their shoes or whatever I can do for them. There are some people you're just honored to do the, the, mo- the lowliest of things for them. John the Baptist was able to prepare the way for the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And this is what makes him the last and the greatest of all the prophets. And this is why Jesus is able to speak so highly of him. But, a new era has begun. And so Jesus will say in the 11, the second half, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. He is greater than him. You see, in Jesus, time has been split in half. With him, the kingdom of God is present. It is coming. It's here. And so, it doesn't mean John won't be saved. It's that John's role is now complete. He's concluded the era of the prophets. And now Jesus is bringing in the new era of salvation. And so... The last main point, who is in the kingdom of heaven? The one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Well, who's in the kingdom of heaven? Who's he talking about that's greater than John the Baptist? Well, what is the kingdom of heaven? It's, the kingdom of heaven is simply where God reigns as king. At, presently, it's an invisible reign. And this is why we say when we pray the Lord's Prayer, Your your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your, Your kingdom come. And we can say, God, Your kingdom be done in my life today. Your kingdom be in my house today. Because it's wherever, the kingdom of heaven is wherever He reigns. And so, those who are in the kingdom of heaven, naturally, are those who have who have God as King, the ones who are least in the kingdom of heaven, are those who have God as King, who reign He reigns over their lives. How does one enter in? How do we get into that kingdom? The message of Christ and the John the Baptist is that the only way to enter God's kingdom is through repentance. That means to turn from our sin and live to God. It means obeying His commands. And it means trusting our lives to Christ Jesus, His Messiah. And it's very important that you hear all those aspects. The only way to enter God's kingdom is through repentance, which doesn't mean just confession, confession. Pastor Nick made this distinction last week. You see, repentance means to turn. It's not just, okay. I'll tell you what I've done wrong and then I've repented. No, it's I I will turn and I'll say I was wrong and I don't want to walk in that way anymore. That's repentance. And so make sure you've done both of those in your life. And that he truly reigns as king. This is the only way to enter his kingdom. To live under his domain. And to be least in the kingdom of heaven. Friends, I hope you know the type of savior you need. You don't need one who will just go and defeat all the evil out there. You need the one who will come in and defeat the evil in here, in my heart and in yours. This is the one we need. So I hope that you will, uh, as you think about Christmas coming, that you will remember that the The baby in the manger is the Christ King and the one who would come to save you from your sins and to sympathize with all your sufferings. All your sufferings. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your kingship that you reign. So Lord, we we long for the day when there is no more evil and we live with you in peace. And Lord, we trust that until that day, you are working all things for our good and you are sanctifying us, uh, and all of these things are done for your glory. Jesus, help us to entrust ourselves to you, to live under your kingship, and to bring you glory in this world. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. I want to invite you to stand.